Well, I want to welcome you uh, to Trinity, and uh, if you're in the worship center, yes, I was just over there, and now I'm over here. So, um, but it's great, great to be together as a church family this morning, and uh, we got three uh, different families that are dedicating children. We're celebrating a baptism as well in our uh, second service in the worship center. So, man, what a day to celebrate together. Well, we are in week two in Romans. Uh, We're spending the next six years in Romans. Uh, I mean, six months in Romans. So so, uh, uh, hopefully it doesn't feel like it by the end. But no, we are just getting started in Romans chapter one. And uh, I hope hope that you're awake this morning. Extra cup of coffee on the way in. We are going to tackle some big questions this morning. Like, um, how do we know there's a God? And, and what about people that have never heard the gospel? And so Paul's thesis statement in the book of Romans, if we go back to last week, Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, Paul says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The gospel is that Jesus, the Son of God, came and and became flesh. The Word became flesh. He lived among us. He lived a human life. He lived a perfect human life. Can you imagine that? And he went to the cross. He was betrayed. He was murdered. He was crucified. He went to the cross for our sin, to take the punishment for our sin. And then he rose from the dead. And overcame death, hell, and the grave. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The salvation from what? You know, maybe you're here and maybe you're not a Christian or maybe you've kind of new to Jesus and new to this whole church thing or maybe you've been a Christian for a while and you've, you've kind of heard people talk about being saved or salvation or all this kind of saved talk. And maybe you've wondered, like, being saved from what? What are we being saved from? And sometimes the gospel has little impact or little effect in our lives because we don't know what we're being saved from. I mean, imagine if you uh, ran into your neighbor's house and said, I'm here to save you, follow me. It's a save from what? But if you ran into your neighbor's house and you said, hey, there's an F5 tornado coming our way. It's headed towards our neighborhood. I saw it on KWWL. Turn on the TV if you don't believe me. I'm here to save you. Come to the basement. Follow me. They'd start to get it a little bit. And the Bible talks a lot about being saved, about salvation. But saved from what? Well, Paul gets into that. In the next verse, in verse 18, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So what are we being saved from? We're being saved from God's wrath that is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people. Now for some of you, this idea of God's wrath Seems a little strange. Like, isn't God a loving God? Yes. 1 John 4, 8 says God is love. 
that is essential to his nature, that is an eternal attribute of God. So, so where does wrath come in? Does God have some sort of like split personality where some days he wakes up and he's like this loving teddy bear in the sky and then some days he's like this vengeful tyrant that's hurling lightning bolts? No. No, God's wrath and God's love are consistent with one another and integrated together. God's wrath isn't like a divine temper tantrum, if that's how you imagine it. It's decisive anger. It's thoughtful. And it's always righteous. And it's always just because it confronts evil and sin and injustice in this world. Think about the kind of anger that you have, the kind of wrath that you have when you see evil or injustice. I'm one of those people that was alive when September 11th happened. Um, but on September 11th, the morning of September 11th, 2001, watching that scene on TV as the planes hit the two towers, I felt some things. And I'm guessing you did too if you witnessed that. Is this visceral anger, not an unrighteous anger, not an unrighteous wrath, it's a justified wrath against injustice. It's not born out of spite. It's born out of love for your country, love for your neighbor. Or a more recent example, those who uh, could, could stomach watching the, the, the seven or eight minute video of George Floyd being killed on the streets of Minneapolis. And, and the visceral response to that. Again, not, not a spiteful anger, a, a justified anger against injustice and evil. It would be unloving not to have this kind of response. Now, what we do with that response as humans, the way we uh, carry out and, and go forward from there when we experience that kind of, of wrath is, is often unjust. But, but God, the way he carries out that wrath, the way he carries out righteous wrath upon sin and injustice is always perfectly loving and just. It's because God is love that he has wrath upon injustice and evil and sin. And it's that wrath that we need to be saved from. And here it says that God's wrath is against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people. Think about those two things, godlessness and unrighteousness. Godlessness, it's, it's suppressing the truth about God, as Romans 1.18 says. It is ignoring God, pretending like God doesn't exist. Godlessness. Unrighteousness, then, is, is doing what is wrong, doing what is against God's perfect design. These are the two things that God holds everyone responsible for, for suppressing the truth about who he is and for violating his moral law. 
These are the two things that all of us, every human being, is supposed to respond to. to. But, but we bury the truth, we suppress the truth, we cover our ears, we make a lot of noise to distract so that it, the truth goes away. Now, for a lot of people in our culture, <clears throat> looking at a verse like this, they would say, I'm not really deserving of God's wrath. Maybe there are some, you know, things I've done wrong I could do better in life. But do I really deserve God's wrath? For the next three chapters, Paul makes a very logical case that everyone is deserving of the wrath of God. That no matter if you're a Gentile or a Jew, religious or non-religious, whether you're a good person or a bad person, we're all deserving of God's wrath because of godlessness and unrighteousness. We knowingly reject God and suppress the truth is the claim that's being made here. Again, another claim that people might react to and say, me, I'm not, I'm not suppressing the truth. I'm not ignoring God. I'm, I'm, maybe some would even say, I'm open to God. God just have, hasn't revealed himself to me. I need more evidence, more proof. But verse 18 says people reject God and God's wrath is revealed because they suppress the truth. Verse 19 says, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. And as a result, people are without excuse. We're deserving of wrath because we suppress the truth about God that is evident in creation. This is, again, these are some massive claims from the Bible. That there are things that can be known about God from creation. That God reveals things about himself, about his eternal power, what he's capable of doing, and about his divine nature, that he's eternal, that he's timeless, that he's holy, that he's personal. All of these things can be evidently seen in creation. And because of that, we're without excuse. We're going to spend some time sorting this out. We're going to spend some time sorting out what are the evidences of God in creation that render humanity as a whole as being without excuse. I'm going to give um, three kind of big ways that we can see what we're going to call God's fingerprints all over creation. Three different areas where we can see God's fingerprints, and there's way more. And we're going to learn some uh, big theology words here. It's going to be fun today. Um, so first is the cosmological fingerprint. The cosmological fingerprint. This goes back to the most basic question of all. Why is there something rather than nothing? And given that there's something, where did that something come from? It is extremely logical to think that there had to be someone or something that knocked over the first domino. That put everything into motion. 
Atheist uh, thinker Carl Sagan was on a radio program one time, a, a scientist, uh, astronomer, and he was explaining his theory, his belief in the Big Bang, that everything in the universe could be accounted for by an explosion of matter at the center of the known universe billions and billions of years ago. And the guy interviewing him had a very um, prescient question. He asked, okay, interesting, and where did the materials that went into that explosion come from? And Carl Sagan answered, that's exactly where science stops. Science can't help us answer that. Science can't help us answer the most important question of all. Where did all of this come from? And so even if the theory of evolution could explain all the complexity and beauty and mystery of human experience, how can nothing multiplied by nobody equal everything? You can't get something from nothing. Zero times zero always equals zero. I learned that in math in third grade. <laughs> and it is, it is incredibly unsatisfying just to shrug our shoulders and say, well, we just, it's just a mystery. We just don't know. We just don't know how to answer the biggest question there is. Where did we come from? If we don't answer that question, how do we know our purpose? How do we know what we're here for? The other day I was talking to my kids and <clears throat> just to, to kind of illustrate for them the cosmological argument for God. I, I pointed to a tree and I said, kids, where did that tree come from? And I, they said, well, it came from a, a seed. I said, well, where did that seed come from? I said, they said, well, it came from another tree. I said, where did that tree come from? Well, it came from another seed. And I said, okay, go back and rewind infinitely back in time. Where did the first tree come from? Where did the matter, the materials that went into making that first tree come from? <clears throat> and the fact that there is something rather than nothing, suggests an all-powerful, eternal being behind it. Something that knocked over that first domino. They had to create something that created the first domino. So that's the first big evidence, big fingerprints of God that we can see. The second is called the teleological fingerprint. Lots of fun words today. Uh, Telos means, in the Greek, purpose. Purpose. There are a lot of things, as you look in the world, that look like they have a purpose. Um, when you look at this, I don't even know why we own this. I, I went in my garage, and I was like, we have a rat trap. Do we have rats? No, we don't have rats, in case you're wondering. But we own a rat trap. Um, when you look at this, you you obviously see, even if you don't even know what it's for, you see this is used for something. Somebody designed this. There's a purpose behind this. And then if somebody were to explain it, you'd say, oh, okay, it's a rat-killing machine. But you'd never assume, looking at this, as simple as it is, there are five parts to a mousetrap. Very simple machine. 
You would never look at a rat trap or a mouse trap and say, that must have been just some sort of happy accident that it all came together. These parts all had to be designed specifically in order to work. If this spring wasn't springy enough, it wouldn't work. If this little arm right here wasn't long enough, it wouldn't work. All of these parts, if this little wooden base was too thin, it would shatter. Someone had to design this and put this together all at once in order for it to work. Now, think about our universe. Think about the human body. Think about plants, plant cells that create energy out of light and water and minerals. Think about how complex these things are. And you have to admit that there is some thing, some intelligent being that designed this and that designed seemingly our planet even for the purpose of human survival. That designed our solar system for the purpose of human survival. If, if the level of oxygen in our atmosphere was 6% lower, all of us would suffocate and die. If, if the level of oxygen in our atmosphere rose by 4%, our globe would erupt in a ball of flame and we would all die. We are 93 million miles from the sun. If we were 2% closer to the sun, uh, there would be a massive heat wave and all the water on earth would evaporate. Our, our planet is tilted at exactly 23 and a half degrees. If it were tilted any differently, temperatures would be far too extreme, so extreme that we would all die. Good thing we happen to have just the right size of moon to keep us tilted at 23 and a half degrees. What about the color of the sun? The color of the sun, if it were any redder or any bluer, photosynthesis wouldn't work. And have you ever thought about Jupiter? <laughs> Do you know that if Jupiter didn't exist, and if it didn't exist at its exact size and at its, its exact location in the solar system, we would have 10,000 times more asteroids pelting our planet. And Bruce Willis wouldn't be able to save us from that. There are thousands of more examples like this. The universe is a very dangerous place, yet somehow we are surviving. Oxford University mathematician John Lennox has said that <clears throat> the odds of human survival, given the potential dangers in the universe, are like a marksman shooting a rifle and hitting a quarter from 20 billion light years away. Now, maybe you say, well, we're just, we're just lucky. We're just that one in a gazillion, gazillion universe that just, you know, solar system or, or, or universe that just happened to make it. Maybe. But it's far more logical to believe that there is a creator and that there is a creator that seems to really love human beings. Third evidence, fingerprints of God in creation is the moral fingerprint. And uh, I have a few of these in my house. Um, but 
<laughs> but isn't it interesting? Every society, um, I looked it up, every society has had a way of, um, has had handcuffs. Every society has had some form of chaining up criminals and has had crimes and laws and a form of, of some sort of justice. Every culture, every society has had some form of morality. Why? Why? Where does that come from? All of us have, a, have some sort of voice within us um, that tells us that there's right and wrong, that tells us how we're, we ought to live. And that, that voice can be, can be twisted in this fallen world that we live in, but there's still a way that, that God uh, reveals his law that's written to our hearts, that's written on our hearts. Uh, Romans 2.15 talks about this, the conscience. Uh, even in places without the Bible, there's still, God has, has imprinted a basic shape, basic notions of morality upon our hearts. And without God, like, where did this notion of right and wrong come from? You just, you just don't see it in other places in creation. Animals don't have a sense of morality. Uh, animals don't care about right and wrong. Oh, thank you. <clears throat> Is there something wrong with my voice? Is that, are you? <laughs> think about the animal kingdom for a second. Is there right and wrong? Do animals think about what they're doing and do they have guilt? Um, there's, there's only one animal I've ever heard of having guilt. It's uh, Bruce the shark in Finding Nemo. Um, what does Bruce say? It's, it's fish, are, fish are friends, not food, right? Um, unless you're Bruce the shark, you don't have guilt. They don't have a sense of morality. And that kind of moral compass that's inherent within every society, within every person, it has to come from a higher being that has a higher standard of morality. So Romans 1.19 makes a profound claim. That evidence for God, God's power and nature is evident in creation. And once you start seeing this, once you start seeing God's fingerprints in creation, you can't stop seeing it. And, and Romans 1 says that we, we see these things if we don't suppress the truth. Now, now these fingerprints don't give 100% absolute proof. But they give, they give enough evidence. They're convincing enough for us to believe in God in at least some basic sense. But part of the problem is we always want more evidence. Uh, sometimes we look at the world around us and we say we, we, we need absolute proof. But how much evidence do you really need? How much evidence do you need? Think about it. Imagine the scenario where you and your family are getting ready to host uh, some friends, just for a fun night together. And you decide to make chocolate chip cookies, uh, something to share, a little treat to share with the, with the guests. You make these chocolate chip cookies, you know, lovingly, your, your you know, patented family recipe. You take them out of the oven, and, uh, you know, it's a few minutes till your friends arrive, so you go and set them 
on the coffee table in the living room. Meanwhile, the kids are playing in another part of the living room. You go back into the kitchen a few minutes until the guests arrive, so you go back and quickly uh, you know, try to clean up and, and put everything away from making the cookies, and you finish up just in time to hear the doorbell ring. You go and answer the doorbell. You let these friends in, lots of greetings, lots of hugs. They, they come in after chatting for a while, and they come into the living room, and you all sit down, and you look at the plate of cookies, and they're gone. <laughs> what happened to the cookies? Well, you have a few options. Um, one is Santa Claus came down the chimney and <laughs> ate the cookies. One is, another is that somebody broke into the house and stole the cookies in the five minutes while you're cleaning the kitchen. Or the simplest explanation, the kids ate the cookies. It's not complicated. And so for us, do you have to have, I mean, do you have to have absolute proof that the kids ate the cookies? No. And in the same way that the fingerprints of God are all over creation, it's the most reasonable explanation that there is a God who is all-powerful, who is timeless, who is all-knowing, who has wisdom beyond, infinitely beyond any human wisdom, and who loves humans like crazy. But the problem is we suppress the truth. And, and Paul says this in the next verse, verse 21, though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Many people want more evidence for God, uh, want absolute proof for God, but the reality is we don't respond rightly even to the evidence that we have, even to the truth that we can clearly see. We don't glorify God. We glorify ourselves. We don't show God gratitude. Instead, we are ungrateful creatures. We don't show the respect and honor and love that the one who created us rightfully deserves. And because of this, going back to verse 20, we are without excuse. Now, the question often comes up, what about those who've never heard of Jesus? What about those who've never heard the gospel? What about some remote tribe that's never had contact with a Christian? A couple things on this. One, we are called to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to all nations. Jesus is the best news there is. Um, and we're called to take this news to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And um, Christianity has been believed and accepted, and Jesus is worshipped in every different kind of culture that you could imagine in, in, around the world. Second, on this question of what about those who have never heard, God is fair. And certainly, if he sent his own son into the world to die for the sins of the world, uh, we can trust that he's going to do the right thing. Um, that he's fair and just. Third, no one will have an excuse as they stand before God on that final day. Any excuse you can imagine, it's not, it's not gonna fly. And fourthly, finally, 
all of us in this room, all of us within the sound of my voice, have heard of Jesus. Have heard the gospel of Jesus. And sometimes people throw out a question like this when we're not even willing to respond to the truth that we do have about God. So we see in these verses in Romans, people reject even what can be easily seen about God because they suppress the truth and it leads to this downward spiral and that kind of goes into the next part of chapter one. We're gonna cover kind of the the last few verses in chapter one next week, But, but Paul says in verse 22 through 25, he says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore God delivered them over in the desires of their heart to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. Godlessness involves suppressing the truth and ignoring God But no one strictly worships nothing or believes in nothing. There's a great theologian um, named Bob Dylan that said, um, that said, you got to serve somebody. You got to serve somebody. And uh, Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson, not a Christian, he says this. He says, there's no true atheists, practically speaking. There are those who acknowledge the gods they're worshiping and those who don't. So what ends up happening is we end up substituting the true God, the true uh, one and only God, with a version of God that we find palatable, that we find acceptable. A version of God that we can control, that we can manipulate, that we can shape to fit what we want it to be. On the surface, people reject God, while in reality, worshiping themselves or their own version of God. You see this in almost every um, pagan false religion in the world. People worshiping the creator or creation rather than the the creator. People claiming to be wise, but instead they're, they're fools, Scripture says. And even today, although many in our country don't worship physical idols like Paul describes here, Um, We still worship creation instead of the creator. Secular scientists give creation credit for creation. Secular science ties itself in knots, trying to come up with an explanation for creation without having to appeal to a creator. And when it comes down to it, ultimately we end up worshiping ourselves. We, we put ourselves as the ones who determine right and wrong, good and evil. We create these worlds that revolve around ourselves. I mean, the message of Disney, of every Disney movie for like the last 40 years is believe in yourself. Um, it's, it's believe in yourself. Um, you can be anything you want to be. And we're those parents that like pause the movie and say, well, kids, you can't be anything, all right? Um, but... That's just, you know, being part of our family, pastor's kids, right? 
Let me sum up Romans 1 with just a few quick points for you. First is just an observation. There are two contradicting lies that we try to hold together simultaneously. A, that God isn't real, even though he's clearly evident in creation. And B, that God is real and it's us. Because we can't not worship. The suppression of truth leads to disordered worship. Disordered worship. Worship where we give ultimate value and weight to something that we shouldn't give weight to. When what you value or honor is out of order, it's disordered. In my home, for example, um, there's a clear order of who I value. Uh, My wife, my kids, and then uh, our new puppy uh, that we got a week ago. You can go ahead and show the picture here. Uh, Eight weeks old, nine weeks old, uh, Flora is her name, a little Bernadoodle that came into our life a week ago. But there's still an order in our home. If if we brought this dog home, and I turned to my wife and I said, okay, honey, we got this dog now, so you understand that the dog's going to move into our room, and uh, you're going to be out in the, no, this is not, this is not going to fly. There would be some righteous wrath uh, over disordered priorities in our home. There's a clear order of who we are to give worth and value to. And when that's disordered, there's wrath. Disordered worship puts us under the wrath of God. Every person is either a worshiper of God or under divine wrath. Like there's not another category that Paul gives. Now you might think, well, I don't really see people being under divine wrath, you know, but but this kind of wrath that Paul describes in verse one, uh, chapter one, verse 24, he says it's God delivering them over to their own desires. In in this age, it's not yet this, this active outpouring of divine displeasure. It's the removal of restraint, of restraint, that allows sinners to reap the fruits of their choices and their rebellion. In the end, this wrath is God giving us what we ask for. It's it's what we deserve. And there are no excuses. We, We suppress the truth. We don't glorify God. We don't show God gratitude. We claim to be wise but are fools. We exchange the glory of God for idols. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. We worship the creature instead of the creator. We don't think it's worthwhile to acknowledge God. So here's a question for you. Do you view the world as being under wrath? Do you see the problem in our world as being primarily a worship problem? Or is the problem just that we need uh, to get rid of social media? Or is the problem that we just need to get our candidate in office? Or is the problem, you know, when you look around at people that, that don't share some of your Christian values, you say, well, the problem is that they need to act differently. Or do you look around at the world and, and say, no, the prob- primary problem is that people don't worship God. 
They don't worship their creator. Our primary problem, our fundamental problem is a worship problem. When we understand that, it, it changes the way that we look at the world. Now, I want to leave you with this, uh, an intense passage this morning. I don't want you to walk away in total despair. Um, your friend asks you, hey, what did you learn in church this morning? Well, we learned that the whole world is under God's wrath, and we deserve it. Um, so here's the hopeful part. In spite of all of this, in spite of the foolishness, the idolatry, the rebellion of human hearts, God sent Jesus to us to break through our rebellion, to break through our darkened hearts. He didn't just walk away and wash his hands and said, I've done with these people. That's what you and I would probably do. He pursued us. And he showed us his love in Jesus. Remember the thesis statement of Paul's letter right before this. He says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And he says, the righteous live by faith. Yes, the righteousness of God is revealed. And we recognize that we are are rightly deserving of God's wrath. But the righteous live by faith. By faith in Jesus, who can save us from the wrath of God. By faith in Jesus, who can make us righteous before a holy God because of his sacrifice, because of what he did for us on the cross. We can be righteous before God by faith in Jesus. So today, no more excuses, no more suppressing the truth, no more worship of self, no more putting the creation over the Creator. Turn to your creator. Turn to your savior and worship him and him alone. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you that You came to us. God, when we wanted nothing to do with you and that you pursued us. And God, we thank you that there is salvation in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name.